We'll take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 3. This is where Pastor Dwayne read for us a little while ago. In the, um, in the four Sundays I have remaining with you, I'm going to continue our series here in the book of Romans. And uh, today we're going to finish chapter 3. Next week we're going to tackle all of chapter 4. And what we're going to see next week is, is what it means for faith to be counted as righteousness. You see that phrase pop up several times in, in chapter 4. The following couple weeks after that will be in chapter 5. It's a rich, rich passage that will separate into, uh, into two different Two different weeks. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there in the next few minutes. So let's jump right in with, uh, with chapter 3, re- start reading in verse 21. I want to read it again just so we can be familiar with it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Then we then overthrow, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, one of the best things that we can do with a passage like this one is to make sure that we understand the words that are being used. And there's some deep words here. Um, There's also a very clear flow from from verse 21, where we just started, all the way through verse 31. Um, Where we were a couple of weeks ago was in verses 21 through 24, but just to make sure we clearly see this flow, I'm going to go back to verse 21 and walk all the way through 31 today. Take something to write with, okay? Or maybe pull up your phone and and pull up your notes app on your phone. Because I'm going to give you some words to help us think logically and clearly as we work through this, all right? Here's the first word that we see. It's the word intervention. Intervention. And we see it at the beginning of verse 21. You say, well, wait a minute. When you were reading that passage of Scripture, I don't remember hearing the word intervention at any point. And you're right. You didn't hear the word or see the word intervention. But... An intervention is found in the first two words of this verse. The very first two words. The first two words are this. But now. Okay? This is the intervention. In our culture, when, uh, when the word intervention is used, it's often used to mean that something bad is going on in somebody's life, and their friends or their family step in to intervene and to bring truth to whatever circumstances are going on. It's an intervention. An intervention is is taking place. There's a cycle of destruction that's taking place in that person's life, and so we intervene to make sure that they can be course-corrected. When you think about mankind in general, you think about how we are in a cycle of destruction. In fact, the, the cycle's so bad that there's no way to break that cycle without divine intervention. 
meaning that only God can do something about the cycle. So let's use the illustration of basketball here for just a moment, okay? Let's say that you're on a basketball team and your team is horrible. I mean, they are absolutely horrible. You can't score points. You sure can't win a game. Every now and then you might have kind of a decent play, but your team is so bad that you have no chance whatsoever of winning a game. But then the GOAT, the greatest of all time, and there's not, it's not even close. There's not even a debate. Michael Jordan shows up to your team. All right, he's now on your team and he's playing with you. And all of a sudden, simply because Michael is on your team, you are a winner instead of a loser. He's carrying the whole team. Nobody else is doing anything. He's the one that's winning for you. Jesus personified is that divine intervention that suddenly changes the course of the game. You're a winner now instead of a loser. And Paul's first words here in verse 21 are, but now. But now, you were lost in your sin with no hope of a relationship with God. But now, the righteousness of God is yours in Christ Jesus. The intervention is taking place through the person and work of Jesus. By the way, the words but now don't just signify a literary shift in the book of Romans. It's also a historical and a theological shift that's taking place here. In the Old Testament, the intervention would take place in the form of a burnt offering sacrifice of an animal to pay the penalty of sin. But now the sacrifice has been offered once and for all in the sacrifice of Jesus. He paid the price that was required for sin to be dealt with. So this is a historical shift. You can, you can point to it on a, on a timeline, but it's also a theological one in the way that God has shifted the way that sin is atoned for. This intervention is monumental. It's huge. The next word in this flow of the passage is the word justification. Justification. We see this in verses 21 through the first part of 24. Now, the simple definition of the word justification is declared righteous. A couple of weeks ago, we used a longer definition in which I said, and by the way, this is on the back of your handout for you today. I put some... some, um, some words there with some definitions, just so you can have a reference to go by. But justification is the judicial act of God in which a sinner who has received Christ as their personal Savior is declared to be righteous. Justification is the act of God in which you are declared righteous. Now, here's what verses 21 through 24 says. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been seen apart from the law. Remember that historical shift I talked about? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they pointed to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the shift. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, they are declared righteous by his grace as a gift. Now we spent a lot of time talking about this a couple of weeks ago. If you want to dive deeper into that verse or those verses, um, go back and watch that sermon. But in understanding this flow, justification is crucial. There's got to be a moment that God, in all of his holiness, and all of his glory, deems a person righteous. If God doesn't do it, no one else can, because our sin is against God alone. So for him to declare a person righteous is massive. It is crucial. 
One author writes that justified people, Christians, have a new status, a new identity, a new family, and a new hope of enjoying a new creation. You are not who you once were. You have that new status, that new identity, that new family, that new hope of enjoying a new creation. And the newness of life does not come unless justification takes place. At the end of verse 24, we find the word redemption. This is your next word, redemption. It says there, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I I hope you remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you that when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he did so in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, the word redemption means to purchase by way of a ransom off the slave market of sin. To purchase by way of a ransom off the slave market of sin. The ransom was the life and death of Jesus, the Son of God. That was the ransom. In fact, Matthew chapter 20, we find that Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. It's us as humans that are on the auction block. We are enslaved to sin and to Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 is clear that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's before Jesus redeemed us. Before Jesus redeemed us, we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, and it's by grace we have been saved. Grace is receiving a gift that we don't deserve. God bought us off the slave market of sin, paying the price for our sin with the spilled blood and the broken body of Jesus. God is a redeeming God. He specializes in intervening in our state of weakness and sin and saving us. Think about the Israelites here for just a moment. The Israelites were enslaved to Egypt for hundreds of years. They had no hope whatsoever of redeeming themselves. They didn't have the manpower to overthrow the Egyptians. They sure didn't have the weapons to overthrow the Egyptians. They were lost in their slavery to Egypt. But what did God do? He stepped in and miracle after miracle after miracle took place and he redeemed them and he carried them out. God is a redeeming God and he has proven that over and over and over and over again all throughout Scripture. Now the context of this passage is really, really clear. That God is a redeeming God in the sense of redeeming us from our sin. But let's take it a step further for just a moment. Some of you are going through things in this room today that are hard. And it could be any number of things. It could be sickness. It could be the recent loss of a loved one. It could be a broken relationship. It could be any number of things. Never, ever, ever forget, though, that the nature and the character of God, the heart of God, is redemption from heartache. That even though we may not see it in this moment or the next moment or even for years, God is a redeeming God and he will redeem the heartache one day. In this flow of what we find here in Romans chapter 3, we find another really big word. It's, It's the word propitiation. That's your next word, propitiation. Verse 25, 
Referring to Jesus, we read, whom God put forward, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, beside the word propitiation, I want you to write two other words, okay? I want you to write the word wrath and the word satisfaction. Okay, so beside propitiation, you write the word wrath and the word satisfaction. And just so you know where we're going with this, the short version of propitiation is that it is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Propitiation is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, show us why God has every right to carry out his wrath on mankind. We see in chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, so again, from, from, from all that is holy, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. People ignore God. They deny God. They claim things about God that are not true. They take his perfect created order and they so distort and defile it that it's affronting to God. They don't honor God. They don't give thanks to God, even though he is the giver of all good things. They create idols for themselves and they worship the creation rather than the creator. People lust after their own pleasure rather than the pleasure of God. They don't acknowledge God as God. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, meaning that if a sin is possible, then the sin is going to be done. Romans chapter 2, verse 2 says that the judgment of God falls rightly, justly, on those who practice such things. God's judgment is absolutely deserved, and God will judge based on a person's righteousness or unrighteousness. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus does a really good job of summarizing this idea of propitiation or satisfying the wrath of God. Here's what he says. He says, whoever believes in the Son, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the distinction there? Right? There's, there's eternal death that's talked about and there's eternal life that's talked about. What's the distinguishing factor between the two? It's Jesus. He is what determines a person's death or life. And their acceptance of him determines the death or the life. The wrath of God is justly poured out on a person because of their sin. It would be more unjust for God to not judge rightly than for him to hold true to his nature and judge correctly. Jesus is the satisfier of the wrath of God, thereby he is the propitiation. He is the satisfier of the wrath of God. Take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 5, and you probably don't have to turn very far. It may just be one page. It may actually be on the same page that you're on right now. Romans chapter 5. What's the result of Jesus as the propitiation? I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. And while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, remember declared righteous, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now here's something I want you to understand, and this is is so important. Jesus gave his life for you for two really big reasons. The first was to satisfy the wrath of God, to be the propitiation. To satisfy the wrath of God, but then here's the second. The other was to demonstrate the great love that God has for you. That even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that the greatest act of love imaginable was done by the God of the universe for you? Even when you were a sinner in total defiance to God, Jesus died for you, laying down his life for you. And maybe you're hearing that for the first time, or maybe you're hearing it for the thousandth time, but don't ignore the beauty of it. Don't grow spiritually calloused so that the reality of that love doesn't affect you every single time you hear it. Let the truth of the love of God penetrate your heart and change your life. And here's the next word we get to, and that's the word demonstrate. Excuse me, demonstration. Demonstration. We see this at the last part of verse 25 through verse 26. I'm going to read that for us. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. In other words, right now. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we talked a few moments ago about how justification is the declaration of God's righteousness on a person. And here we see not just the declaration, but the demonstration. God's righteousness is demonstrated for us through Jesus. Paul says that in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? Let's let's talk about it. Let's break it down a little bit. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles. While you're turning there, I'm going to break down these two words, divine forbearance, okay? First of all, divine just means sovereignty. Um, In God's sovereignty, he's able to see and know and understand things that we are not. He's able to do things that we are not able to do. Then there's the word forbearance. Forbearance means both patience and mercy together. It's both of them together. So God is mercifully patient with mankind. Divine forbearance. In his sovereignty, he is patient, excuse me, mercifully patient with us. We, we read there that in God's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. The former sins is talking about before the cross and before the resurrection. But here's what Romans chapter 10, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and go to an illustration that I've shared with you in the past that helps us understand this idea of sin and how God deals with sin. 
I want you to compare sin to smelly, nasty Limburger cheese. You've heard me share this before. That Limburger cheese is absolutely nasty. I've never smelled it before. Don't have any desire to smell it, but I'm told it smells nasty. Pretend that your sin is the Limburger cheese and something's got to be done with it. It can't sit out on the counter anymore. Something has got to be done with it. The stench is rotten. The effect is far-reaching. The curse that comes with that sin carries over into every part of life. In the Old Testament, so before Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for our sins, in the Old Testament, the way to deal with the sin is to offer a sacrifice every single year. An animal had to die. The blood of the animal had to be spilt in order for the wrath of God to be pushed back. So your Limburger cheese is out on the counter. You take some saran wrap. You wrap up the cheese. The sin's still there, but the sacrifice has covered it for the time being. That's how it was in the Old Testament. It was a covering of the sin. Verse 4 told us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is only possible for that sacrifice to cover up the sin to curb the wrath of God. In verses 5 through 8, we haven't read that. I'm going to summarize it for us. But in verses 5 through 8, you find that Jesus comes to do the will of the Father and to be the sacrifice that's needed. Not to cover up the sin, but to get this, take it away completely. Get it out of here. When you've got that Limburger cheese, you want to get rid of the smell, what should you do? You can cover it up with saran wrap, and then when that saran wrap goes bad and doesn't work anymore, you can cover it up some more. You can cover it up some more. And you know, sometimes I think we try to do that. We think, oh, the sin's there. If I just, if I just cover it up, not relying on the blood of Jesus to deal with this, but relying on my own ability to deal with this, all we're doing is covering it up over and over and over again. Look at the verse, end of verse 9. He, Jesus, does away with the first, the Old Testament way of doing it, that was incomplete in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What he's saying is that it is the will of God to do away with the first covenant, the first promise, in order to establish a new covenant, a new promise. A promise in which Jesus is all that's ever needed for a relationship with God. A promise in which when we confess our sin and place our faith and trust in Jesus, the stench of our sin is removed from the nostrils of God. Back in Romans chapter 3, we find that God did all of this. He sent Jesus. He established the new covenant with the blood of Jesus to show his righteousness at the present time. So right now, his righteousness is seen through Jesus so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I love those words. God is both just and the justifier because it reminds me that God alone is perfectly just and righteous. And who better to trust with your soul than the one who can truly declare you righteous, even when you haven't done a thing to earn his righteousness? God demonstrates himself. He shows himself through the redemptive process. His glory is revealed. His character, his nature is revealed. The wonder of his love is seen through the redemption that is offered us. 
And this is what Paul's saying, look at this, look at what God has done. I can't help but think once again about Romans 5, 8 that tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what does all of this mean for us? And this is how we're going to wrap it up. It's with the last word. Got some other words to go with this one. But it's the word implications. Implications. And we see this through verses 27 through 31. What are we supposed to do with all this that we've talked about? Don't put your notes away yet because you've got some other words to write underneath this one, okay? Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? In other words, are my works going to cut it? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, they are declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, the law, the, law, the works of the law is not going to do anything to save you. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles since, also since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There's three implications that come with this passage, okay? By the way, an implication is a response. Um, one thing impacts you, so this passage has impacted us, so here is the result. Here's where we go with that, all right? First, there's the implication of humility, of humility. Paul says, boasting? No, nah, there's no reason for that. There's no reason to boast in anything that I've done or you've done. If everything that we read in verses 21 through 26 is true, then on what grounds do you have to boast about anything? It's not your doing. You're not the one intervening. You're not the one declaring yourself righteous. You aren't buying yourself off the slave market of sin. You're not satisfying the wrath of God. You're not demonstrating your great power and love simultaneously in this redemptive work. You're not doing any of those things. So what reason do you have to boast? We have nothing to boast about except Jesus and his sacrificial work for us on the cross. But boy, what a boast that is. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 would burst out in verses 27 through 31. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because of Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, get this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me not boast in my ability or in what I have done. It is nothing. Jesus has done every bit of it on my behalf. May our boast be in the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's it. There's no other boast anywhere. Here's the second implication, and that is unity. Unity. Paul says that God is not the God of the Jews only. He's the God of the Gentiles. Since God is one, multiple parts in one, the church of Jesus Christ should be one. There is no room for factions. There is no room for slanderous gossip that tears down the body. There is no room for disunity of any kind. 
Yes, deal with your differences in a biblical way. Work out conflict in a way that honors the Lord and builds up the body. But don't forget that as God is one, the church is to be one through faith in Jesus Christ. Then here's the third implication. Obey God. Obey God. And Paul breaks this down a little bit more later in the book of Romans, but he tells his readers that the law of God is not to be thrown out. Don't mistake the faith and the new covenant for getting rid of the law of God, the word of God. The word of God is there to build us up, to increase our faith, to show us what it means to live in the righteousness of God. Obey God no matter what. The law of God is good and right. The leading of God in the life of a church and the individual Christian is a blessing. It doesn't matter what God says. Obey him. Always, always obey God. Our family is seeking to do just that. I told you last week that we're stepping away from, from Salem in a few weeks. We've been feeling God work and tug on our hearts for some time. And when we finally surrendered to obey him, even though it was scary, and even though we love this church so much, there's been a joy in the middle of the obedience that is refreshing and that is energizing. There is nothing in this world more important than obeying God. I say that as someone who's trying to actively practice that. No greater place to be than in the center of God's will, doing whatever it is he calls you to do and leads you to do. Church, we've laid out today what can be argued as one of the most impactful passages in the entire Bible. And I want to encourage you to take this and digest it this week. Think about it. Let the implications that we talked about change your life. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that today the Holy Spirit has sharpened us. That, Father, if there's anybody who does not know you, through the person and work of Jesus, that today will be the day that they come to faith in you. And I'll just say, if you are here today or maybe you're watching online and that applies to you, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you're realizing for the first time what God has truly done in offering you redemption, then come see me after the service or come see a Christian friend so we can show you what it looks like to give your life to Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you continually draw us closer in our relationship with you. May you be honored by our lives and would you be honored by our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.